If you have a Bible, uh, I would invite you to open to Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 15. Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 15. I'll read verses 1 through 15 if you'd follow along. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews, and then notice there is a footnote, maybe in your Bible, as there is in mine, uh, that that points out probably this is a reference to the Jewish leadership. um, And this happens quite a bit in the book of Acts, uh, Luke summarizes or or condenses uh, when he speaks of the Jews, he's speaking of the Jewish leaders. So uh, verse six again, but the Jewish leaders especially were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities, they were disturbed when they heard these things, and when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, They let them go. The brothers and sisters immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them, therefore, believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers and sisters immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea. But Silas and Timothy remained there, and those who, con- those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as possible, as soon as possible, they departed. This is the word of the Lord. Well, uh, Lori mentioned it at the start of our service this morning, this Sunday, uh, and by saying Happy Reformation Sunday. And so I want to talk about uh, the Reformation a bit, but just a couple things to clarify. Today is Reformation Sunday. That's not to be confused with tomorrow, which is Reformation Day. October 31 is Reformation Day. Reformation Sunday falls on the Sunday closest to 
October 31, and so it's Reformation uh, Sunday, but again, not Reformation Day. Uh, if you can see my shirt, this is my, my costume for tomorrow, uh, and some of you were asking about it. So there's another thing that people do tomorrow uh, on October 31 uh, that involves costumes, and that's fine and all, whatever. Come to my house if you need some candy, we'll have some, uh, but um, I celebrate Reformation Day tomorrow, and so this is my Reformation Day costume. And so, thank you. I'm trying. Yes, minus the crazy haircut and and whatnot. Um, So, um, why? Maybe some of you are asking, why why are we spending a little bit of time talking about the Reformation? Um, So, typically, um, we go through books or sections of the Bible, and we are in the Minor Prophets. uh, But today, we take a slight pause from Minor Prophets. Lord willing, we'll be back next week. Uh, But the reason is simple. why we pause to talk about the Reformation. You know, just as we celebrate and remember and recognize other special days, be it birthdays, be it anniversaries, be it Super Bowl Sunday. Thank you, I heard a laugh over there. February 12th, this year, this coming season, right? Uh, Christmas, Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday. We, We celebrate national days. Of course, there's July 4th. Uh, we, we recognize even days of national tragedy. December 7, 1941. We remember September 11, 2001. So we do this as a people. It's not just about being Americans. It's not just about being Christians. Right? We, we, we recognize days. We recognize parts of history. Well, I believe, um, and, and if you've been a part of SOMA for a while now, we will generally pause on this Sunday um, to talk about what it means uh, that this this event happened um, on October 31 in particular, but before and after, um, because we are Protestant, and I'll talk about that word in a minute, um, and, and we should celebrate and remember uh, and recognize um, church history, which is our history. It's not overstating to say if the events that happened 500 years ago didn't happen, and yes, God is sovereign, but, but they happened. Uh, we, if they hadn't, we wouldn't be here. We, we are here, we are gathering um, because of God's faithfulness and sovereignty, but uh, he, he used men and women in, in a mighty way, um, especially some 500 years ago. Um, and so it's not that Martin Luther, that's the guy on the screen, that's the guy on my shirt, or John Calvin, or Zwingli, or, or any of the other uh, men and women of that time. It's not that they were perfect, they're not, they're not holy saints that we, you know, Worship, although I do have my little Luther statue there. Got to have some fun once in a while. They, they weren't perfect. They, they were sinners who believed that they were saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, just like we believe that. Um, but as I say, in God's sovereignty um, over the events and times and places, even as we sang a few minutes ago, um, Christ is our firm foundation. He's been faithful, faithful through all generations. And that includes what, what he did. And, and uh, I, I am passionate that as your pastor, we, we know some of our history, some of our family history. Um, because here's, here's the bottom line. What was going on was, was a rediscovery of the gospel, the good news, a, a rediscovery of, of the scriptures uh, that had been hidden for a lot of different reasons. But a big part of it was uh, only the elite were educated and, and they knew Latin and so the average person, and again, we're going to focus on Germany in a moment, but the average German 
uh, couldn't read Latin. They couldn't read anything. Uh, and, and the scriptures were in Latin, so only some of the elite priests knew it. But even then, uh, they didn't have Bibles like you and I have. Um, they, they didn't walk around with it like this or on their tablet, and they couldn't just you know, get to the scriptures the way we, we can. Um, but there would be a rediscovery of what the Bible says. So let's, let's talk for a minute about some of that historical context and understand some of these, these terms. So if you look at the screen, I put a few terms uh, up there for us for a moment just to understand. So um, Protestant, reformer or reformator. Um, so that was a funny one. Some of you might recall I had the privilege five years ago of traveling to Germany in the summer of 2017, uh, the summer of the 500th anniversary of all this stuff. And so we had these tour guides taking us along various places. And, and the way some of the German tour guides translated reformer into English was to call a reformer a reformator, you know, like a terminator, uh, but they were a reformator. And so I just, I, we don't say that, but I thought it was too funny to forget. So um, here's the point. Martin Luther didn't wake up 505 years ago tomorrow and think, you know what? I want to be a protester. You know what? I want to, um, you know, start a new movement called the Reformation. Um, that, that was definitely not what was in his mind. Martin Luther loved the church. He, he struggled to love God at that time in his life, but he, he loved the church. Um, he was a Roman Catholic monk because what had happened some years back uh, he was a law student, and he had been home on a little holiday, and he was traveling back to school, and a thunderstorm uh, was happening, and he was caught up in this storm, and he was terrified that, that he would die. Uh, and so he made a vow uh, to the only mediator he knew of at the time. And so as a medieval Roman Catholic, uh, so 500 years ago in the Roman church, um, he knew a lot about various saints, and one of them was St. Anne. So Martin Luther's father was a miner, and St. Anne was the patron saint of miners, so he had grown up hearing of St. Anne. And so as the thunderstorm is happening and he thinks he's going to die, he cries out and prays, help me, St. Anne, and I will become a monk. And Martin Luther survived, and he made true on his vow that he had made to St. Anne, but nonetheless, he he followed through on that, much to Luther's father's uh, horror. He quit law school, and he entered into uh, the monastery to be a monk. So fast forward, Luther is in a monastery, and as I said, Luther loved the church, uh, but he, he struggled to love God. He was aware of his own sins, and he felt so guilty, and he knew God was holy, and he knew he just he wasn't perfect. He couldn't be clean. He just felt sinful and dirty all the time. Uh, but Luther had a superior uh, there at the monastery, Johann von Staupitz. And, and this man, again, in God's goodness, saw what Luther didn't see in himself, saw that Luther had a future, if you will, for the church and for God's people. Uh, and so uh, one historian writes like this, that von Staupitz sent Luther on a pilgrimage to Rome. He felt it would be good for Luther to visit the holy city and get his soul right. But what Luther found at Rome, amidst the hypocrisy and the facade, it only served to disillusion him further. So he returns from Rome, and then Staupitz realizes Martin needs to study theology and the Bible. He needs to get to the source. 
again, back to what I said earlier, they didn't have access to the Bible like we do. So Martin Luther's a monk, but he's never read the Bible. He didn't have access to it, and, and it wasn't in his town. And so, I mean, there were just a few copies in various places, and those were, again, Latin translations of the original Hebrew and Greek. So von Staupitz believes Luther should go uh, and, and study theology, study the scriptures, and, and, and there he would find Christ. And, and we say amen to that. And so uh, Luther does then go, and he receives his doctorate, and he begins to lecture in theology, and he's driven back to the writings of St. Augustine some time, thousand years prior, but then further back to the source, to the scriptures, to the writings of the Apostle Paul, to the Gospels. And it's fascinating. So now we're in like 1510. So Martin Luther, he's, he's studying and teaching uh, books of the Bible like Hebrews and the Gospels and the Psalms and Galatians. And, and God is at work from his word in Luther's life as he gets back to the source. And again, providentially, some of you will recall from history, something else had happened in Germany not too long before. Um, Johann Gutenberg developed a printing press with movable type. So, I mean, we are right on the verge where things are going to be able to be copied and distributed, and people will have access not only to what Luther would end up writing and others, but, but to the Bible, to the Scriptures. Again, God is seeing to it that all these things are converging in, in this time in history. Again, just to underscore it, um, all of it is centered on the Word of God. Luther is finally... Having learned Greek, he's reading the Greek New Testament, and, and, and he's at the source. He's, he's learning Hebrew and, and reading the Hebrew scriptures, and, and he is in the word of God. So, my, by the way, the title of this message today is The Word of the Reformation. By word, I mean the book, the Bible, the word of the Reformation. It was this rediscovery of God's word in Luther and, and eventually the world. So now, fast forward in the timeline back to 1517, 505 years ago, October 31. Again, Luther isn't waking up thinking he wants to be a protester or a reformer or anything like that. Maybe a reformer, because again, what was going on, October 31 is All Hallows' Eve. You can hear where we get the word Halloween, okay? It was All Hallows' Eve, which is the day before, All Saints' Day. And what would happen, again, especially in medieval Roman Catholicism, is that pilgrims would come to cities where there were relics, these, these things that the church uh, had amassed and, and collectors had amassed, things like, you know, maybe a piece of wood that supposedly was from the cross of Jesus. And if, if your town, your prince had that relic, you would want to go see that. Uh, and so pilgrims would come all over the place, and, and, and what had begun to happen, again, one of the uh, abuses happening in the church was that there was this teaching that you could pay to have your sins forgiven. If you looked at these relics, if you, if you paid money, then you would be given uh, some forgiveness, some time off purgatory, uh, but this, this whole thing was just blown crazy out of proportion, I mean... None of that is in the scriptures to begin with, but again, this was the tradition that just was passed and passed and passed, 
And, and so Luther, he, he doesn't fully understand the gospel yet, but he's seeing even in his own town now where he's kind of the, the theologian of this town, he's preaching, he, he's seeing people in his church that, that should be feeding their families with their money, paying to go across other counties to get these pieces of paper to forgive them. And so he's got a pastoral burden. So, so that's, that's bothering him, and it's a conflict with what he sees in the Word of God. But, but then the other thing, uh, there was this kind of famous painter, you may have heard of him, Michelangelo. So Michelangelo, he's busy painting the Sistine Chapel ceiling of St. Peter's Cathedral in Rome. So Pope Leo X had commissioned Michelangelo to do that masterpiece, uh, but Pope Leo's running out of money to pay Michelangelo. Uh, meanwhile, nearby, Luther, back in Germany, um, is a man named Albert of Mainz. Think of him kind of like a district superintendent, right? We're part of the EV Free. We, we live in our western district. Uh, currently, our superintendent is a guy named Matt Moore. And so Matt travels around. He, he in some ways, is over uh, us and our churches. So Albert was, was the, sort of like superintendent over Mainz, which is a near, nearby region. Well, he was... He had overstepped his boundaries. You were only allowed to have one area. It was called a bishopric uh, that you oversaw. But he had two, even though um, the, the Roman Catholic law forbade that. He had that come to him when he was young. Uh, and he wanted a third. Because why not? If I could have two, maybe I could have a third area to, to be over. And so Pope Leo X and Albert worked out this deal. Albert would raise money if the Pope would let him have this third area. And, and then if he got that, then Albert would raise money and send it to the Pope to pay Michelangelo for all the painting that was happening. And, and Albert came up with uh, using this other monk named Johann Tetzel. So Tetzel was, was he, he was very charismatic in, in his preaching and teaching. And so he would travel around and he, again, would, would get people to come to see these different relics uh, that, that had been collected over the years. And, and, and he was gifted with, with, you know, they didn't have smoke and lasers like we have nowadays, but, but he would light fires on his stage and burn his hand uh, just, you know, to put on a show. Uh, and he devised this little jingle, you might say, you've heard this, when a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. And so even into English, it translates. So Tetzel was selling indulgences for Albert of Mainz, uh, and, and so people flocked to hear this traveling monk who was scaring people, and yet they were paying. And so that drove Luther crazy. So God's word is at work in his soul as he's studying and teaching, and he sees a conflict with the scriptures, with what the church teaches, and then there's this preacher doing that. So Luther, in his own words, said he couldn't be silent any longer. So if Luther had been living today, he would have got on Twitter. And he would have tweeted out 95 tweets. But there wasn't a thing called Twitter back then. But what they had were big doors uh, in towns. And so there was uh, the city church uh, there. Uh, and, and so it had this gigantic door. And it was kind of like a bulletin board for the city. And people would post things. And so Luther, he drafts 95 points. And again, he's not trying to start something new he wants a dialogue. He, he's hoping that others are bothered also by all of this. And so he wants to post these, get people talking. He knows people are coming the next day and will see some of this. And so he nails on the church door, 
October 31, 1517, 505 years ago tomorrow, what, what we know as the 95 Theses, again, in hope of stirring a debate. Um, it would be the event that historians would look back on as the, the start of the Reformation, okay? Um, now, again, there had been people before Luther that were faithful to the word and who were trying to reform uh, God's people in the word, and, and, and seeds were sown, and if we had time, we would talk about all that too. Um, but, but again, in God's providence, this, this moment happens. And in this event, uh, again, you've got the printing press that, that can get these 95 theses printed out and translated and make their way to Rome. Well, it, it, it is, as has been said, sort of the fire that, that lights the Reformation. So Pope Leo wasn't interested in debating this. Uh, in fact, when he read of these and read them and heard about it, he dismissed Luther. Uh, he, he called what Luther did simply the ramblings of a drunken German. He said uh, that Luther would think differently when he sobers up. So again, the 95 Thesis, they, they, they are a far cry from the heart of the gospel, but, but there's this beginning, and again, it's about the abuse of the indulgence preachers and sellers, uh, but things just continue. He continues to lecture and write, and the word is transforming him. And so, back to the words, right? Um, eventually, um, as, as, as Luther teaches the Bible, um, he would begin to go in a direction opposite of the Roman Catholic Church, and so it would be called a, a protest against the Roman Catholic Church. That's where we get Protestant, uh, protesting, although again, it was never his intention in the beginning. Um, he did want to reform. In fact, the reformers all would speak of always that God's people should always be reforming based on the word. The word always should be causing reform. And so that's where the word reformer or reformator comes to us. And thus you put them together. This Protestant reformation um, was something that over the next 20, 30, 40 years, and it would travel to Scotland and John Knox, um, to Switzerland with John Calvin and, and so many others. Um, and at the heart of it, though, is the word of God. Fast forward a few years, four years in particular, to the spring of 1521. So this is 500 years ago last year, okay? So three and a half years after the 95 Thesis. Um, there's been a lot going on in Luther's soul as he studied and as he understands the scriptures, especially, again, teaching through Romans and, and learning what the Apostle Paul says, that, that the gospel uh, is the only way uh, to God. It, it is um, how we are saved. Um, and Romans speaking of um, the righteousness of God, and Luther finally understands it's, we are called to be righteous, but it's outside of us. We can't earn it, buy it, get to it. It's got to be imputed to us, uh, and so, so those things would come about. But in the spring of 1521, uh, the Pope has had it with Luther, and so um, Luther has been officially excommunicated, and he's been called to, um, and this is always funny every time I say it, the diet of worms. Diet doesn't mean what they were eating, and worms isn't what they were eating. Uh, a diet or diet was, was a gathering, a meeting, and the city is worms, but it looks like worms in English. And so it's just funny, one of those funny things in English. So he's, he's called to this, this diet at Worms. And so April 16, 
That's a good day, April 16th. Luther arrives in Wittenberg in 1521. Uh, he arrives as a hero. I mean, people in Germany love him. Not only is he teaching the Bible, but part, part of what he's doing too is wanting the, the German people. He was, he was a politician of sorts. Um, he, he wanted especially the peasants to have a right, and, and they had been mistreated by the elite class, and so uh, he was loved by the average German, and he, he arrives to a hero's welcome. And on April 17, the next day, he is brought in, and his books are all set up on a table and, 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 and summarize. Uh, basically, they say to him, are those your books? And he says, yes, those are my books. And then they say, recant. And, and then your death sentence basically will go away. Um, your excommunication will, will go away. And Luther was surprised. He thought he was going to get to defend and debate, but no. It was, are those your books, yes or no? And if they are, recant. Say that you, you don't hold to what you wrote. Well, Luther says he needs a knight. He needs to go pray. And so then April 18, 1521, he stands before this gathering, and, and here's a transcript of what he says toward the end. Since then, your serene majesty and your lordship seek a simple answer, I will give it in this manner, plain and unvarnished. Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the Pope or in the councils alone, since it is well known that they often err and contradict themselves, I am bound to the scriptures that I have quoted. And my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not retract anything since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. I cannot do otherwise. Here I stand. May God help me. And so with that, Luther does not recant. Uh, and so uh, he is still excommunicated, and now there's this official bounty out on, on Luther's head. And um, it would be cool if, like, as he's, like, leaving that next day, all the next things happen. Probably it didn't happen quite that fast. Um, in fact, this Diet of Worms had been going on for several months. They were dealing with other things as well. But so eventually, over the, <clears throat> the next days and weeks, Luther begins to head home from Worms back to Wittenberg, where he was a professor, and he's kidnapped. And he probably believes at this moment that it's from the Pope and that he's going to be kidnapped to his death. But in fact, it was a, a friendly kidnapping. So his elector, his prince in, in Wittenberg, set this whole thing up because even though this prince in Wittenberg was very much Roman Catholic and very much had uh, relics, um, he loved Luther. Luther was well-loved, and it brought people to his university, and he wanted his guy to be safe. So he kidnaps him and sends him to this amazing castle called the Wartburg. And again, um, when I was able to travel to Germany, I got to be in this castle, and it is a fortress. I was telling my family, as I was thinking about this this week and, and remembering my trip and looking at pictures, it's not a palace. It's not a chateau like some of us watch those chateau shows on YouTube. Um, and this was a fortress. It is still a fortress. And, and there in the Wartburg, Luther would spend uh, a good nine months or more. Uh, he, would, he would grow out his hair. He would take on a new name. In German, it was Junker Jorg. Uh, Dad, what does that mean? 
I think it's Prince George, or Knight, Knight, Junker, uh, Knight, like Knight George. Uh, although um, his, his friends would say later, Luther, you look nothing like a knight. He did not have the body of a knight. Uh, but he took on that name, Knight George, and he would travel down into the village to hear what other people were saying about him. But most importantly during this time, you know what Luther was doing in the Wartburg? He was translating the Bible into the common German language to, to the vernacular that his people back in Wittenberg spoke. He wanted them to get to the source, to the source that had so transformed him over those years. Well, Luther would return eventually, and, and even though there was still this bounty on his head, he would, he would preach and teach, and he would marry and, and do a lot more, but we'll leave Luther for now. Um, and for the few minutes that remain, I, I, I do want to talk about this word that he was translating, this word that he had been teaching and studying that, that caused him to rediscover the gospel, this, this word that, that he said, like, I, I'm held captive to it. Unless I can be convinced that it is different, this is what my life is on. So um, some of us know about the attributes of God. Maybe we've studied or heard teaching on God's holiness or his omnipotence or, uh, <clears throat> you know, his kindness, his goodness, his grace, right? These characteristics of God. Well, there are attributes of the Bible that historians, uh, especially after the Reformation, came up with. And so you, you see the word scan as you go down. That's one way to remember these four uh, attributes is this acronym SCAN. Uh, so these aren't in the Bible directly, but, but indirectly the Bible says this about itself, uh, that the Bible is sufficient, that God's word is enough. It contains everything we need to know how to be saved and to live the way God wants us to live. We don't need a special angel showing up in a cave, in a mountain to tell us anything else. We have right here how we are to be saved. It is sufficient. Um, God's word is, is clear. There's clarity that the saving message of Jesus is, is plain and clear. A four, five-year-old can understand that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. Four or five-year-olds can get that. It's clear. And that's what they meant by the clarity of the scriptures. It doesn't mean there aren't hard things that we have to wrestle with. But as it relates to the salvation message of Jesus, the gospel, the good news, we don't need official teaching from a church um, to, to help us, right? The Bible is clear. Um, a, the authority, and this is kind of my main point today, um, God's word gets the last word. It's final. Um, we, we aren't to allow any other teaching to... to um, to precede uh, what the scriptures teach. Um, God's word is final. I'll, again, come to that in a minute as we look at Acts 17. And then in necessity, that is, God's word is necessary. Um, the scriptures say that the heavens declare the glory of God, and they do. And yesterday, a few of us, we were in uh, at Riverfront Regional Park enjoying God's creation, walking and hiking, and the redwood trees and the birds and the animals, I mean, it, it proclaims the glory of God, but it can't get to Jesus. So, so we all know Romans 1 says it's in our souls as um, image bearers that God exists and we see it in creation, but, but that's general revelation. We need this special revelation, this teaching from 
from God in his word to point us to Christ. So it's necessary. So those are four attributes of the scriptures. But again, speaking mostly for a few more minutes on the authority of the Bible, uh, I do want to point us to some things in Acts 17. By the way, I'm very thankful how God in his goodness uh, aligned our reading in our book for tonight with this as well, because as we declare that the Bible um, is sufficient and clear and authoritative and necessary, how do we really know that this book is all that? It's one thing to say it, uh, and, and so Kruger in these final chapters has been trying to help his daughter and us understand. So just one more plug for your reading for tonight. Um, So Acts 17, um, it's a wonderful account of Paul and Silas uh, in two cities, Thessalonica and then in this city known as Berea. And and I'm uh, just, you know, going to be brief here at the end just to point out a couple of things. And some of you, um, you've you've heard this text before and you know uh, where this is going. Um, There's similarities in these two towns. Uh, Paul is the same in both. He goes and finds where there's a work of uh, Jewish people gathered in a synagogue in both cities. Um, in both, the word is proclaimed. Um, it's, it's met with um, some response and, pers- and persuasion, but also with some hostility. Um, and, and so this is what Paul did. Uh, but, but the thing we notice right away is that these Thessalonians, especially, I love that phrase, uh, the rabble. Um, the wicked men of the rabble. That's just a great way to summarize people. Wicked men of the rabble. It's like the people we get notified about in our emails from the police every night that have been caught doing wicked things, right? Uh, the wicked men of the rabble, right? They, they stir up um, people against Paul and Silas. Ironically, they stir up all these people and create all this stuff, and then they go and they say that Paul and Silas have been stirring up people and have been turning the world upside down. It says that there in verse uh, 7. But here's, here's the gist of it. When you get to those in Berea, this is what Luke writes later. He says, verse 11, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. And here's why he says it. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So Paul is preaching. It was the same method. He's trying to show from the Hebrew scriptures that Jesus is the promised one. So they're hearing it. And so they go and they find their scrolls and they are examining. Does this guy is what he says, is it line up? Because in their mind, what, what is implied is the scriptures are authoritative. And if Paul is in line with the authoritative scriptures, then we'll believe it. Like, do you, do you get the point there? They want to believe Paul. And if, it's, if it lines up, they're on board. And, and, and interestingly, right, also we see here that doctrine of the clarity of scripture. They examined, and, and they're making sure that the clear teaching of the scriptures lines up with the preaching of the Apostle Paul. One writer says, Paul's own people disregarded his message because they thought he was too much of a big shot. Unfortunately, this sort of prejudice happens even in our day. People dismiss the word of God because, well, the music in church is too loud or it's too old. 
or the church is too small, or the church is too big, or because the pastor dresses funny, or because they knew a mean Christian once, or because, well, they don't want to be like their parents, right? We, we all do this. Uh, the point is, these Bereans, if, if what was being taught matched what was in the scriptures, they received it. It was authority that they would receive. All religion rests on authority. Christianity does as well. And Martin Luther, the other reformers, uh, they would say, and this now is Michael Kruger from our reading for tonight, um, there is nothing more foundational, nothing more central to your health, my health, the health of Christians, than to maintain a deep and abiding trust in the truth of God's word. And, and that, was, that was the heart of the Reformation of Luther. It was this conviction that this is the authoritative word of God. Yes, there's questions and there's things that are difficult. Um, Peter would write, and he does, that some of what the Apostle Paul writes is hard to understand. There's, there's difficulties, there's things that are paradoxical and some dates don't line up. But there are answers, friends. There are answers. God's people have studied and investigated. And this book holds up. And it needs to be authoritative in my life. It needs to be authoritative in your life. And there's nothing more foundational, more central to our health and growth as Christians than to maintain that deep and abiding trust in God's uh, word as being true. Is, is the scripture the last word for you? And is it the last word for me? Is it authoritative in our life? That's, that's my question this morning. In light of Reformation Day, uh, Sunday, excuse me, uh, and Reformation Day tomorrow and our uh, honoring and remembering of, of the history, do the scriptures have that place in your life? I'd like to end our, our sermon and then we're gonna sing one final song together by, by having us stand and having us together declare and confess what we believe about the Bible. And sometimes we, we have to say what we believe and get our heart to catch up. And it's okay to have questions. It's okay to have, have things you want clarified. This, this doesn't mean, right, you just, you don't engage your mind. God gave us a mind. And, and that's what, again, the reformers did. They studied, they queried the text um, but they trusted God at his word. And so on the screen, I'm going to put up um, our statement of faith, number two, on the Bible. And I want us to read this together. Here we go. We believe that God has spoken in the scriptures, both Old and New Testaments, through the words of human authors as the verbally inspired word of God. The Bible is without error in the original writings, the complete revelation of his will for salvation, and the ultimate authority by which every realm of human knowledge and endeavor should be judged. Therefore, it is to be believed in all that it teaches, obeyed in all that it requires, and trusted in all that it promises. Would 
Let's pray and then let's, uh, let's sing one final song together. So Father, would you help us to uh, trust your good word, to believe what it teaches, to obey it as well. And when we have questions, God, may we seek answers. May we not simply doubt and then leave those doubts uh, unpursued. Help us, help us see the glorious gospel again and again and again. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. May we see that and believe that and preach that to ourselves and teach it to others and be committed to it and, and say along with the reformers, on this word we stand. Unless we're convinced that it's wrong, we will stand on it and trust the word. Help us. We need it. In Jesus' name.